Thank you, President Kevin. Um, and I'm delighted to be at this meeting with all our members and guests. It's my great pleasure this afternoon to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Robert Webster, who's the State President of RSL in Victoria. And he's held that role since February 2017. Uh, there are many uh, links between the RSL and Rotary. Uh, for a start, they live opposite us in Collins Street at number four. Uh, we're at number 15. Uh, and we share um, the early leadership of our organisations. Um, and we're about the same age. And uh, Rotary Club, uh, Rotary in Australia is coming up to 100 years and RSL a little more than that. And, of course, Sir John Monash was... Um, a leader in the establishment of both Rotary and the RSL. Uh, and he was our second president, of course. Uh, there are other common initiatives between uh, the RSL and Rotary, and many of them are in health. And uh, Robert is, uh, has devoted a lot of his life, after starting as an accountant, uh, he's become... Uh, interested in health and been a board member of Austin Health uh, and currently a board member of the Royal Humane Society. Uh, and we have uh, some partnerships with RSL and Rotary in, in health, in the treatment of trauma. Uh, and a lot of this has happened since uh, Robert Webster became state president. Uh, we have a common program to uh, fight PD PTSD uh, and uh, Rotary, Australian Rotary Health now has four joint PhD programs with the RSL looking at, at PTSD. Nationally, there are four and one of those is in Victoria. So we're delighted, Robert, to have this partnership with uh, the RSL and I'd ask my fellow members and guests to uh, give you a hearty welcome uh, to speak to our club. Robert. Uh, thank you Peter and uh, thank you to President Kevin for asking me to, to be here today. He asked what topic I'd talk about and uh, I thought I'd go right back to where it started, which is uh, in February 1968, when I was required to register for national service. I was deferred until April 1969 to finish some exams and bits and pieces. And uh, I went into the army on the 24th of April 1969. And Nasho, as one of the WAGs in our unit called it, one of Bob Menzies' chosen few. A little bit more about me. I inadvertently come from a reasonably long line of military people. My mother and father both served in World War II. My maternal grandfather served for 10 years from 1937 through to 1947. Um, his brother, unfortunately, had been killed on the Somme in uh, the First World War. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of links and uh, being also the family genealogist, um, 
it's interesting to, to trace the 30-odd that uh, went to World War I, about 40 that went to World War II, and uh, a number that went to Vietnam and Korea and other places. My brother is a Vietnam veteran as well. He, um, he's a regular soldier, or was a regular soldier for 23 years, and he and I spent an overlapping 12 months. I was in Vietnam from February to February. Ian was in Vietnam from September to September. So we had about five months in common in country. During um, recruit training, actually, I was uh, conferred with my Diploma of Commerce from Swinburne in absentia. They wouldn't let me out for the day. I don't know why. Um, they might have thought I wouldn't come back. But uh, after finishing recruit training, uh, the military chose, he's a newly qualified accountant with a couple of years' work experience. Uh, let's make him a stores clerk. So they taught me all about accounting for oil and petrol and ammunition and stores and all those sorts of things. So after I did that, I went up to Townsville for about five months. I uh, got in the practice of how you did it in the field for, for a military unit. And then in February 1970, I went to Vietnam. That seemed to stop most of the accounting. <laughs> the unit that uh, I was appointed to, the, the 26 Transport Company, um, actually controlled, was essentially the town council for uh, Nui Dat. And we had the, the garbage truck, the water truck, the fuel point, the you, you name it, the post office, the, the, uh, the, the canteens unit and all these sorts of places. So it was, it was just uh, the town council. But our biggest role was not only looking after the internals of the base, but we also uh, controlled the heavy lift helicopters that were taking material out into, into the field. And so to a certain extent, I became an air traffic controller. Interestingly enough, all our, our call signs were chairman because essentially an air traffic controller for heavy lift helicopters sits in a deck chair and pops a coloured smoke grenade as to where you want the pilot to put the stuff down. If I can just explain that, Nui Dat was a fully enclosed defensive perimeter. We had virtually no uh, Vietnamese nationals working inside the base. And so with the three battalions of uh, infantry that were there, they worked outside the base, uh, sometimes for, for months at a time. And what they did is they developed what we called fire support bases. And of course, this week is uh, the anniversary of the battles of uh, fire support base Coral and Belmoral. Um, and, and so one of my tasks was to organise fuel, ammunition, water, to be heavy lifted in 500 gallon bladders out into, out into the field. Now, I don't want to get too technical on this, but essentially a fire support base was about 8,000 metres out. And the reason it was 8,000 metres out is that the main guns that we had at uh, Nui Dat were able to fire 11,500 metres. So any, any, the fire support base remained underneath the cover 
of the guns from, from uh, Nui Dat. I had a terrific year, um, learned a heap of stuff about myself, learned a heap of stuff about living with, you know, 40, 50 other blokes too. <laughs> Um, and, and so, you know, in, in that respect, uh, I, I had a, a, a reasonably good war, uh, if you can call war good. Uh, changed a bit on Christmas Day, 1970. Um, we had in our unit, unfortunately, a shooting uh, where two of our sergeants, one of the guys that I worked with, uh, were killed. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of changed the whole world. Because um, about 15 years later, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And partly the PTSD was diagnosed because of my guilt that I couldn't do anything to have stopped it. And how come they got killed and I didn't? And those, those sort of feelings stay with you forever. And so... Um, Coming back from uh, Vietnam, I uh, had some leave, did all the normal boring things like go down the beach, have a surf, <laughs> visit the, the girlfriend that I'd had it uh, before I went away, etc., etc., etc. And it was, it was, life was good. Uh, I should point out at this stage I was living in South Australia. Um, and so from anything that's come from since, I'm a South Australian because my army number starts with a number four. Uh, whereas if you're from Victoria, it starts with a three, etc., etc., etc. So I'm not going to bore you with the details, other than to say that you know we we ran probably 150 to 180 flights a month. Uh, we handled between 45 and 55,000 pounds of rations. You've got to remember we're in pounds at this stage because we were we we're on the tail end of the American logistics system. It was easier to add. 8,000 on the end of half a million than was to run our own logistics system. Um, lots of water. Uh, our uh, transport units, one of them was a, uh, a tipper unit and it built roads. Uh, we had some, en we worked with some engineers and we, we quarried out the side of a couple of hills and uh, used it for road base and all that sort of stuff. So I came home in February. Uh, 1971, um, really eerie, really eerie. Um, at that stage, we're, we're just over the, the um, moratorium marches and those sorts of things. I came home on a 707, Quanta 707, uh, landed in Sydney just after, after midnight. We were tucked away in motels, uh, Bondi and various places, and uh, the army expected me. Tomorrow night, I in 15 hours or 16 hours after I landed, to hop on a train to go to Melbourne and then spend a day wandering around Melbourne and hop on a train to go to Adelaide. I've still got the receipt, $38 it cost me, to actually buy a plane ticket on top of what they were going to pay as my train ticket. And TAA still lost my luggage. We won't go there. Anyway, so uh, next morning I hot-footed it down to uh, Mascot and hopped on an aeroplane, came to Melbourne, uh, got, <laughs> got out of the airport, straight to the uh, TRB, the transport, whatever they were called, VRB, 
uh, to renew my driver's license because they wouldn't re let my father renew my driver's license because I was overseas. So if I was going to drive, I need to get my driver's license renewed. And so this um, lovely young lady kept asking me why I didn't renew my license. And I said, well, I've only arrived back in the country 11 hours ago and uh, I've been in uniform in the other part of the world. Anyway, eventually got that. Fronted out to see my grandparents in, who lived in Box Hill, just near the Box Hill footy ground. And as I walked in, my grandfather said, I know where you've been. My grandfather, who served for 10 years during the Second World War, was a pacifist. His brother had been killed in the First World War. And nothing would stop him being a pacifist. And he said, I know where you've been. Even though your mother's been sending me postcards from Townsville, I know where you've been. And Ian's probably there too. And I said, well, now you come to mention it, you're probably right. Anyway, it was a, a re really good day and I then caught a plane about five o'clock to go back to Adelaide and, um, and sort of the rest is history. Had six weeks worth of leave, went back into the army uh, just before Easter in uh, 1971. And one day they just called us all out and all the 16th Intake National Servicemen line up. Now, in the Army, you line up according to the highest to the shortest. So here's sort of 40 blokes lined up, beautiful. And this wizened old major comes out and he says, you all lined up in alphabetical order. That took 40 minutes <laughs> to work the alphabetical order. And literally, he walked down from A to Z with a W. I was pretty close to Ziggy, my mate who was on the end. And he handed us a bit of paper and he said to us, that's your interim discharge, it's the 11th of April. If you're still on the base in an hour, you'll be classed as a trespasser. Scratched my head, packed my bongos and left. Went home and told my dad. And my dad said the bastards haven't changed at all. They did that to us as well. So. So the, the parting words as we bolted for the gate was, if you're not back at work on the 7th of May, you lose any rights you have under the National Service, National Service Act. You had to go back to work within 14 days of being discharged in order to keep your job and all those sorts of things. So, so I came back, settled down, became an accountant. One of the nice things from my professional body, the CPA Australia, is that in the end they accepted... 12 months of my uh, two-year military service as professional experience to, for professional purposes. A couple of years later, came back to Melbourne. Um, I've just seen a question come up and I'll, I'll just answer that one quickly. Later in uh, 1971, uh, when my brother came home from Vietnam, he and I went for a swim down the beach. We lived about 400 metres from the beach. And it was a bitterly cold afternoon with a southwesterly blowing and the waves were fabulous. <laughs> and so Ian and I have sort of wandered up after we'd had a swim and, and this bloke's walked out the pub and he's gone, Jesus, you guys reckon it's cold. Come and see these two silly buggers. Anyway, the long and short of it was the local RSL. I walked in, became a member and it was like, good on you, buddy. Um, and I, anyway, we came back to Melbourne. Um, 
uh, married, uh, walked into the QRSL. The president looked at me and said, I know you. And I said, yeah, Harry, I used to go to school with Tony and Andrew. And he said, you wait till I tell them that I've just seen you. And, and so I, I had a very good welcome home. Um, people wanted to talk to me, ask me what I'd done and those sorts of things. So it's a bit different and I know it's different in different states that, uh, that uh, some Vietnam veterans didn't have a good welcome home. I accept that. Uh, unfortunately, that's not my experience. So, you know, settle down, couple of kids, get involved in the RSL. All of a sudden, um, kids start want to play school sport and all that sort of stuff. So I got out of the RSL for a couple for about ten years. I stayed a member, but got off out of any administrative roles. Um, and then the, the local senior sergeant of police, who was the secretary of the sub branch, uh, knocked on the door one day and said, "Jack Ryan is the local plumber. He's currently he's going to retire next year as the president. So we want you back on the committee." And uh, from 1988, I'm still there. Um, so PTSD hit me in the probably mid-90s, uh, 20 years after it happened. And I, my wife said to me one day, she said, geez, you don't like Christmas, do you? And I just said, well, you know, Wally and Alan got killed on Christmas Day, 1970, and it's not a real good day to remember. And she said, yeah, well, how come we got two kids born in December? Yeah, right, let's not go there. Anyway, after a while, I, uh, she pushed me off to see some, some counsellors and all sorts of things. And, you know, it's all that stuff that you, you hear about, people dream and, and those sorts of things. And, and so I did a bit of work in it. I refused to accept that I had PTSD for a while. Um, it took a while, probably through to the mid-2000s, when I really got some serious treatment. And uh, I'm, I must admit, uh, it was absolutely life-changing when I did it. And uh, I, I reckon I've been a better dad, a better husband, and all sorts of things since I, I had that treatment. I uh, did a program at the Heidelberg Hospital, uh, 10 weeks, uh, three days a week. And uh, it, it just put everything back into, into uh, perspective. See, the thing is, when you go in the army, the first three months, they break you and then make, remake you in their mould. And you virtually never get a debrief. I came home by plane, got told to clear off, go back to work. Bit different, I think, from the guy, and there's a, a whole range of studies being done. A bit different from the guys in the battalions where the majority of the battalion came home by ship had a 14 to 16 day sea voyage to come home, to calm down, debrief, whatever, whatever, whatever. I fired my rifle at 11 o'clock on the morning of the day that I came home. Whereas these guys had two weeks to chill out on the way home. So there's, there's this, this study being done about, about coming home by plane, coming home by train. The other study is the one being done between a regular soldier, like my brother, and the National Serviceman. The National Serviceman in many cases just got told, your two years is up, out. Whereas the regular soldier had his four or six weeks leave 
and went back into a unit where there were people who had probably already served overseas and those sorts of things. So that's uh, the, the whole range of different variables that you can see there uh, might impact. And if you can sit around at the end of the day with uh, you know, the guys in the unit that you're with, maybe a cup of tea or a beer, um, you, you can talk about those sorts of things. But you can't if you don't have anybody to talk about. So, so PTSD is a learning curve. A massive learning curve and uh, I went back and um, at the encouragement of uh, Terry Grant Peter uh, and did a bit of bit of bit of back work in you know where's PTSD come from well PTSD appears in a number of the Shakespeare plays where one of the the wives at one stage complains no doubt to the audience that her husband has lost interest in her and he's not sleeping well and all this sort of stuff the classical PTSD symptoms Next, uh, documented in the American Civil War and was called Soldier's Heart. Uh, World War I, World War I had a number of names, shell shock, lack of moral fibre and probably the worst one, just plain cowardice. And uh, then so World War II, war neurosis, combat fatigue, and then early out of Vietnam was called combat stress disorder. But and now we know it in the psych, psychological mental illness ranks as post-traumatic stress. Now, clearly it's been identified in the military for a long time, but, of course, it's only now being widely recognised as existing across the whole community. And it, it exists across the whole community uh, and, and probably people who see more of it than the soldiers do are the ambos, the fireys and the coppers. And, and so there's a lot of work being done uh, with not only uh, the military but across the emergency services cohorts particularly uh, with, uh, with uh, PTSD. Um, the symptoms are classified in sort of three interesting ways. Intrusive system, uh, symptoms, the symptoms that impinge on you, the nightmares, the bad, bad dreams, the night sweats, the you know, just not, not feeling right. Avoidance, and avoidance uh, sort of comes from all sorts of things. I just don't believe Christmas happens. It's the way I've dealt with it for a long time. I used to deal with it that way for a long time, which wasn't real flash for the kids because with two of them with their birthdays in December, yeah. Um, you know, you just try to forget stuff, gaps in your memory or you drown it with drugs or alcohol. And so there's all sorts of things. Sleep disturbance, anger, irritability, concentration problems, uh, constantly on the lookout for signs of danger. One of the cartoons that goes around and around and around the Vietnam Veteran Network is the wife sitting opposite the husband in the, in the restaurant and the husband sitting there hunched down with a cap pulled down. And she said, all right, I'll swap seats with you so that you can watch the door. Very common, very common. You need to have something secure behind your back so that you can watch what's coming at you. Terrible arousal symptoms. Uh, car backfires still get me occasionally. Uh, I hit the, hit the deck in Collins Street one day uh, with a car backfire. Uh, it, that startled reflex. And so... 
it's through that, through the uh, Rotary Mental Health work that uh, has been done, that a couple of our sub-branches in the northern part of the state, uh, uh, Shepparton predominantly, but a number up, up in that region, um, have got together with Rotary and uh, we've extended that a bit. Um, our, our view at, at uh, the moment is that we will support Rotary any fundraising to support mental health and PTSD. Now, I, I, I've got to make a very tight difference here. If I say I'm raising money for veterans, I cannot spend that money outside Victoria. Victorian Act of Parliament. It goes into what's called a patriotic fund, can only be spent on veterans in Victoria. So we stand next to Rotary and assist Rotary. We provide some accommodation or we'll provide the advertising, but Rotary's doing the fundraising. Why? Because Rotary Health's headquarters is in Sydney. And that's where the money goes to first. And if, if it comes through our books, we can't do it. And so it's, it's one of those archaic pieces of legislation. Victoria is now the only state that has it. Sometimes it's frustrating, but it gives us a very good control mechanism and gives the state and the community a fairly good handle on we raise money from the public, we're spending it in Victoria, we're reporting to Consumer Affairs in Victoria on how we've raised it and how we've spent it. So that's PTSD. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to... I've, I've met Katrina Streetfield a couple of times uh, the lass from who lives at uh, Romsey Lansfield somewhere, but she's actually enrolled as uh, a student in uh, in the University of Newcastle, um, and we're helping her. Her project's dealing with transmitted PTSD to kids, and uh, there's an enormous amount of evidence on on it's it's inherited through the families. And, and so she's doing some really particular work on on um, on the kids of veterans, not well a bit past Vietnam veterans, but you know, the more recent veterans in uh, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, and uh, Timor, and other peacekeeping, peacemaking operations around the world. She's putting together what she hopes to be a toolbox that can be used by families to help the kids and. Uh, I think we're we're doing uh, doing uh, as much as we can to support her, um, and that uh, I think it's the next Rotary district to the west of you guys. Uh, Been very strong supporters. I spoke at their conference in Yarrawonga a couple of years ago uh, on PTSD and and those sorts of things. Uh, and I um, I, uh, I can only congratulate uh, Rotary for the work that they're doing in that space and uh, not only in the mental health, but all sorts of other places. Uh, Katrina's been sponsored by uh, uh, Darabin RSL uh, and the, uh, I think the Rotary Club of Darabin uh, and others uh, are pitching in there as well, but they're providing each $10,000 a year towards her scholarship. And so uh, that's how we're, we're working with, with, with you people. I um, was first introduced to Terry Grant not long after I became uh, State President and it turns out that we've got a couple of mates in common. 
and it's, it's a bit, bit impossible. I met Terry one day and about three weeks later I'm sitting in a church at a funeral and he comes and sits next to me for a mate of ours' mother. And it's, you know, it's, it's that small world business that, uh, that gets on. So, um, Mr Chairman, I'm happy to uh, answer questions. Um, uh, I hope you've uh, learned a bit from what I've talked about. Thank you.